You know, yeah. how are you doing? What's what's your reality? What are you experiencing right now? How are you processing key moments or critical junctures in your life? And what are you doing to hopefully progress and, and move through that or mature or grow? Welcome to the Bronovo Podcast, the podcast that models healthy communication for men, empowering them to start the journey of self-work. Now here's your host, Thomas Pierce. Welcome everybody. This week's guest is Nico. Nico and I were classmates in college, or for those of you on the metric system, university, I'm looking at you, Hayden. So Nico and I didn't interact a ton at school, but I just had a feeling that he was going to be a really interesting person to talk to. And wow, was that a correct intuition? He really blew me away with how thoughtful, articulate, and genuine he was. This is an awesome, awesome conversation. Enjoy. Lift off. Good morning, Nico. Morning, Thomas. <laughs> Thanks so much for taking the time to chat. I'm really excited to to hear what we come up with today. Absolutely. Pleasure to be here. For sure. So we went to school together at yeah. GW and I saw some of your activity on LinkedIn recently and I wanted to have you on because I, when I was thinking about you in class, I remember you being, you seemed like a very cool dude. First of all, I was like, this, this dude's cool. Like he's, he's got it going on, whatever it is, like he's cool. But I noticed that you were, you seemed very thoughtful too. It didn't seem like you you would observe first and kind of yeah. hold yourself very well and, and carry yourself well. So those are my <laughs> initial impressions of you. <laughs> I, I, appreciate that. I appreciate that, man. You know, I'm, I'm no cooler than any other guy walking down the street, but I think that the point you made, the second point around how I hold myself or how I'm kind of observing things is spot on, you know, my sort of mentality or mindset whenever I step into a new space or new room is, how do I make sense of it? You know, how do I kind of just take a step back and see what's happening here? Who's who's speaking? Who's kind of observing? Who's really out here just doing stuff? And I try to make that sort of a, a priority in any situation that I step into, right? How do I make sure that I, I don't want to say close my mouth, but make sure I'm just really listening and focusing on taking in my uh, surroundings before I decide how I want to act. And I've always just been that way. You know, it's always important for me to make sense of, of my surroundings before I decide to proceed in any sort of way. Do you know where you learned that from? Yeah, you know, I, I think it's it's probably a combination of things. I'd have to give my parents some credit, specifically my dad. I think <laughs> he always tells me, uh, you, have, you have two ears and one mouth. And so I think listening, nice. <laughs> it's always been about that for me, right? I think, you know, he's, he's always been super good about that. But I think also... I, I've moved so much in my life. Uh, and one thing you learn when you move from place to place to place is being adaptable and being flexible and being uh, a great listener and a keen observer. Uh, because each environment you're, you're taking in is completely different. You know, I've had, and we can get into this further, but I've had stops in Seattle, San Francisco, Atlanta, New York, Chicago, Pennsylvania, um, Washington, D.C., obviously for school. And so each and every time I'm making those different moves and different steps, they're all different. They're not the same. The people are different. The, the the spaces, the city, the architecture, all of it is different. And you'd be a fool to kind of just step in and say, hey, I'm going to take my my understanding of what I was doing over here in Chicago and apply that same sort of logic to where I'm in Atlanta and things will be perfect. You know, different ballgame, different landscape, different environment. So I think it's just really important to just take things in and try to make sense of it first. For sure. I wonder if that's almost a self-protection mechanism as a young person, right? As a kid. Yeah, man. Ooh, you're, you're getting to it now. You're getting to the good stuff. <laughs> but I think so. And I'm actually glad you said that because I think it was, uh, that, that's something that I kind of developed, I think, along my journey where I realized that because I was on the go so much, because I was moving, that in order for me to feel safe in certain spaces, I had to be comfortable first. You know, I was never someone to just dive right in and get to it. You know, I always watched other people kind of do that first and said, maybe I would have done that, but I've done it a little bit differently, right? And I kind of get the benefit of that. I think a lot of folks that maybe don't die first, uh, they may miss some things, but they also get the experience of seeing where others may have misstepped or maybe have been a bit overzealous. And so definitely would agree that I think I did some of that for my safety 
and also just really think it was uh, me just trying to be thoughtful around what was happening in front of me. For sure. And that whole concept of spaces and safety is something I've been, you know, becoming more aware of just acknowledging how, you know, whiteness is centered in our country and how, you know, my perspective has never really been challenged in that way or my safety, right. On the day-to-day basis is not put into question. Um, So I can imagine, especially with that and in combination with being in new cities every couple of years, it sounds like. Yeah. Yeah. So a chameleon of sorts. (laughs) You can say that. I guess so. I guess so. (laughs) That's dope, man. Yeah. So I guess let's let's go to OrgSci because we we studied a pretty interesting major. We we were grateful to have that experience where it seems like people like Dr. Nils Olsen just kind of woke up one day and said, let's let's make up this major. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, no, I, I, I totally hear you and totally agree, but it, it was a blessing, man. I think you really said it best, where I think there was a lot of folks that were straddling that line of uh, liberal arts and having some business interest and wanting to work in a corporate space, not wanting to necessarily do financial analysis, not necessarily wanting to just be straight business majors. And so this concept of organizational psychology, which was more formally organizational behavior or org sciences at GW, was a great combination for me of saying, how do I come into an organization for all of us to come into an organization and be able to, to diagnose issues from a people perspective or organizational perspective? And so uh, a bit of a sort of a rare kind of unique major, but I thoroughly enjoyed it. And I, I found it super late. I think I'm not sure when you found it yourself, but. I didn't really get going, I think, until it was probably the end of my sophomore year, beginning of my junior year. And I was so you know, lucky to, to have found it. And I just each course was was really interesting and fascinating. And you talk about people like Nils Olsen, just great, great guy, you know, always focused on helping you out with the research, <laughs> questions, all of that. There was a ton of great professors in that in that space. And um, I really enjoyed it. I don't know how your experience was. but I thought it was a really uh, good time studying that. For sure. It, it, it was fascinating. And I think it really appealed to the the student in me because it it was kind of this abstract it was very, very abstract in some ways it was like how do we organize i'm going to use the word organizations how do we structure groups of people so that people feel productive and heard and I, one of the biggest things that i still laugh about is just the concept of how to make people feel seen and heard at work yeah. and basically the research just says ask them what they think and it doesn't even matter if you implement or even listen to what they say, but just asking them yeah. <laughs> what they think yeah. about their workplace makes people feel so much <laughs> yeah. more heard. It's <laughs> fascinating, right? I mean, um, and I think we've taken a, a bit different career paths with someone that's kind of stayed along this like line of HR and human capital. So much of what we do in our annual employee engagement survey is soliciting that feedback. It's It's being thoughtful around what questions we're asking, how we're asking them. And also being mindful of making sure of saying, hey, you know, in comparison to last year, we have great data from last year. How do we make sure that we're not just, even though we want to tie in year over year trending, let's make sure that we're not being insensitive to asking questions that maybe we didn't really action that well this past year, right? If, if there's been some sort of discrepancy or, or people are upset around, let's say, rewards and recognition, how do we make sure that, oh, we're still trying to get good data that we're not necessarily asking the same question if you haven't done anything about it, right? So to your point, Asking is, is extremely important. Also need to be thoughtful really around um, what we're going to do with that data and what we're going to action and making sure that we're just being thoughtful about that, I think is important. For sure. And for my own understanding, and there probably are young people listening to exploring career paths, what is a, an HR business partner? Yeah, absolutely. An HR business partner really is a, is a thought partner to any business leader from a people perspective, right? And so I guess if you take a, a step back, a PL leader or a business leader really has responsibility for growing a business uh, from a revenue perspective or from a profit perspective, right? And so they have partners that aid them in that outside of the business, right? So you have a financial partner, you have a, an HR partner, you have a comms partner, communications, marketing. Your HR business partner looks at your organization and says, from a people perspective, are we set up for success? Meaning, do we have the right talent? Do we, right, do we have the right skill set? Um, are, are, is our succession planning, meaning, you know, our successors to people that are in critical roles, are they in place? Are we, do we have the right training and development in place? All these things are going to help aid, aid us, aid the business leader reach their business goal, right? So 
I, I, I get excited about that role because I think it's a great way to kind of take a step back, look at the org across different role levels, different roles, and say, hey, with who we have in-house right now and what we've been given from leadership, are we able to reach our goals in an effective way? And if we're not, do we need to go external to get that talent? Do we need to internally move someone? How do we make sure that we're, we're set up from success from a people perspective? I guess it's the simple way, simplest way yeah. I can describe it. That's great. I mean, it, it seems like very forward thinking. And is it something that only organizations at a certain scale have? I, I think it's a it's a, a tough question to answer. So I, I'd say like this: most traditional large multinational corporations will have HR business partners and troves uh, supporting different okay. businesses. Um, there's, there's a lot of different thought process around the the correlation or the sort of the I guess the balance between HR business partner to employee population. I think sometimes the ideal number is like maybe like you know one HR business partner supports you know. 400 to 500 people managers within a business. Sometimes that number is as high as 700 to 800 uh, I've seen in other places, but I think it depends. Sometimes in startups, to kind of pivot now a bit, there's that thing where, you know, as we're going through Series A, as we're going through funding and different sort of things, there's a the right time to kind of bring in that HR presence. And that person probably is going to be a bit more of a generalist. <clears throat> and when I say generalist, really, I mean like a jack of all trades. Uh, I, I think most startups probably wouldn't really need a specific HR business partner until they reach, reach a certain headcount, employee headcount, uh, and they've, they've secured some of their funding, right? So I think it's really just finding the right time and place. But most traditional corporations will have that, and uh, they're they're really key people in making sure that there's organizational success. You know, I think there's I don't want to go on a soliloquy here, but I think there's a lot of <laughs> different perspectives around how valuable, how valuable is HR to the business. And, and so long as you're incorporating that workforce planning, you're being a, a thought partner, you're being strategic, you're being forward thinking, you're, you're highlighting how making key people decisions affects the bottom line. Your opinion should be valued. You should have a seat at the table. For sure. Yeah. That's, that's interesting. The, the last organization I was at, there was a lot of awareness around, you know, who's a cost center and who's producing, Mm-hmm. So uh, <laughs> that's interesting you said that because I, I'd imagine at some point you do have to, or any HR team has to justify their numbers and yeah. and point to, hey, we were going to say hire five more people, but actually my team was able to analyze it and, and come to the decision that three people would get the job done and we saved yeah. you $200,000. A hundred percent. It's it's great you say that, right? The the cost savings and the efficiencies, right, in terms of, of headcount. And so um, I actually did quite a bit of that work in my, my previous role, just looking across and saying, hey, um, how can we highlight or demonstrate that we're being thoughtful and that we are making key decisions to, to save money uh, and like meaningful amounts of money, right? So those are key decisions that you know, HR business partners have to make as well. And to your point, when you use that example of we thought it was five roles and it was three roles, you're able to actually kind of even look at it a, a bit deeper and say, hey, if we think we're going to hire maybe four or five senior related roles, can we actually maybe bring in some more junior related roles that still can support that work, but promotes upward mobility, meaning that these people will sit in this role for maybe a year and a half or two years. We'll promote them internally. They'll be satisfied. And we're actually saving more money doing that, bringing them in at a lower base salary, promoting them to that space as, as opposed to kind of getting that externally and paying a premium on that sort of price. Right. So all that is a great example of what a, a good HR business partner should do. Sneaky businesses, man. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, no. Sneaky is not the word. It's, it's efficient. It's, it's how to keep the doors open. Yeah. So is this then the, the kind of job that you come in as like an HR generalist and with more experience? You, Cause this sounds like, kind of like the sexy side of HR. Like this sounds interesting. Yeah. There's, there's some strategy. I would imagine one can't just walk in right after graduation and say, I'm going to be your HR business partner. Yeah, Typically not. I'll give you a, a really brief career walk of what it looks like. Typically what you, what you really do come out of school is you probably be a, an HR analyst somewhere. Right. And so that really is going to comprise of you just supporting, you know, different HR generalists, different HR efforts across the board. And you really just could be more on the, the reporting and the metric side and supporting stuff and, you know, getting meetings and all that, right. The progression to kind of the next thing is probably either a senior HR analyst or an HR generalist. 
HR generalists are jack of all trades. So they're really supporting compensation, talent, leadership development, rewards and recognition, comp, all those different things, but much more in a transactional way. And so they're providing direct support to HR business partners. They're kind of the first to, to sort things out, kind of go through the data, make some solid recommendations, but probably in a less client facing way in a more transactional way. And then the further step beyond generalist, obviously is business partner um, where now you're kind of being a bit more strategic. You're, you're able to kind of face off with the client more. You are kind of the most client facing HR person, you know, uh, as part of the HR organization. And so you have that responsibility to really be a thought partner and bring value there. And that's just kind of the, the, the sort of generalist track, but I think that's a good way of describing it. Kind of analyst, senior analyst, generalist to HR business partner. Nice. That's awesome. That's, that's interesting and good to know, Yeah, you know, for me as well. (laughs) Cool. So, so you work in this place where you get to think and use your brain around the psychology of the workplace and Mm. human behavior and how people interact with their employee employer. Have there been moments or, or what are the moments when you, have seen things that are applicable to personal lives too. Cause we all bring our personal life to work. It's not talked about. It's kind of under this like sheen of the yeah. professional presentation, but have you noticed any things that are like lessons that are applicable from what you've learned at work into, into someone's personal life too? Yeah. I mean, I, I think the thing I think about is probably around this time last year, there was a, a ton of conversation around diversity, equity, and inclusion um, across all organizations. And there was this mad dash to host town halls and forums and conversations. Let's talk about all this stuff, all this uh, sort of racial reckoning, uh, reckoning that we're having in this country. We've been having for years. And I think I remember myself being squarely in that and each and every day being confronted with this choice of how do I show up and do I have the, uh, sort of, physical and mental endurance to to keep going here and showing up and being a voice and being positive and, and trying to be part of the solution. And um, you, you kind of asked really around like life lessons or sort of personal lessons that I applied to personal life. I think for me, as challenging as it was, I chose to lead with vulnerability and I chose to lead with uh, emotional depth and, and honesty and transparency around what my experiences were. And a lot of those moments were tough. Uh, a lot of a lot of moments I probably hadn't envisioned me having to you know really endure in, in, in my workplace in my work environment. But um, I saw it as a responsibility, and I, I saw it as me being like, you know what, I need I need to be able to look back on this and feel like I did my part and I did the work and that I was part of the solution here, and not that it, it falls. Or, you know, is the responsibility of all people of color to, you know, share their their trauma or share what has happened to them for people to understand that. I think it's actually kind of challenging and a, a bit of an issue in some ways when that's called upon too much. But I did feel a responsibility in terms of the folks that have come before me, thinking about my grandma, thinking about my dad, thinking about my other coworkers and things that they've endured. So I, I felt that and I and I was hundred percent trying to lean into my most authentic self and yeah, just just leaning with with a lot of, of vulnerability and honesty. That's incredible, man. I'm I'm beaming just to hear you speak about that and be so yeah vulnerable, man. Thank you, and yeah. I think that is extremely selfless of you to see something that you know is a cultural challenge, uh, and more than a challenge, it's yeah we we know we know what it is, and yeah. and to to see that and to feel that sense of responsibility and, 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 and say, you know what, I have an opportunity to, to better the, this moment. And to do that is pretty incredible, dude. I think hats off to you, honestly. Yeah. I, I appreciate that, man. And it was a challenging uh, thing for me to really arrive on. Cause I think there's a, like I said, the other sort of spaces, it's not my responsibility to do this. People should just understand this. Why, why does my pain have to be a lesson or put on display for people to understand that? But, you know, that sort of that sort of mentality, what it does or what it creates is just, a, you know, a sense of, OK, well, if I'm not going to share and these other people aren't going to share what what could possibly change. I mean, this moment's going to happen and things are going to go on and people will forget about this. And that's a larger conversation really around how corporate America is tackling DE&I work. And we can get to that. But 
I just felt that responsibility in the moment to kind of say, hey, like, this is how real this is for some people. And I'm sure my experience is pale in comparison to some of my colleagues. And, and obviously, hearing some of their stories is really painful, too. But I just wanted to make sure that, you know, I I, uh, I didn't opt out or I didn't check out in that sort of way. That would have felt a bit irresponsible and a bit just self selfish, I think, on my part. So really was challenging, but, but glad I did it when I look back on it. Dude, fuck yeah. And I, th- I think I think that's an important note for the white people in the audience. What you mentioned was, you know, when these conversations are happening about D&I, you know, racial sensitivity, racial sensitivity, I don't even like that term. It's just more just acknowledging that one of the lived experiences, right, yeah. of, of, of people who people of color. Yeah. And you mentioned this moment where these conversations happen and the burden gets put on the people of color to talk. Yeah. And what I've been learning in pursuing this conversation is that it's on us white people to participate. And definitely, I, th- I think a lot of the feedback I've gotten is that there's some hesitancy to overstep. Yeah. Um, but I would argue it's worse to not participate than 100%. to say something and, and say the wrong thing. Because 100%. if it's done in goodwill and it's done authentically, yeah. It's going to be a good thing. <laughs> You're 100 percent right, man. We always preach this in our in our in my price role, at least in my HR organization, and as I go into my, my new space, it's it's better to try and to make an effort and maybe make a misstep than to opt out or to feel as if I'm not going to do this right, so I don't want to do it. Nothing changes from that perspective when people opt out, right? And so, what we always try to stress is that in order for any organization to really embed DNI work across the enterprise and to have it be meaningful and not have it just be an HR exercise starts at the top of the house. Uh, we, we need leadership, which tends to be more often white men to lead the charge, to be out there, to be vocal, to really be, you know, adopters of that, to hold folks accountable for that, embedding that in terms of their overall organizational goals. Uh, I see a lot of HR organizations out here now tying long-term uh, incentives to DNI goals in terms of bonuses and things like that. It's important. And, and I think that it, it starts from that, the, the top, right? I think the thing that we all were acknowledging or all thought around is if, if people of color could lead the charge and really could do that, we wouldn't be sitting here in 2021, you know, <laughs> right? We've been trying, we've been doing these things. We've been making these efforts, right? It's, it's not for our lack of effort. It's sometimes the lack of sponsorship we, we get sometimes from the top. And so, this past year has been, I think, have been a bit exciting where I've seen more people express more interest and people having genuine care and wanting to learn. I mean, I had countless conversations with colleagues that wanted to learn more around what they could do to help. And all that was extremely positive. And I think there's tons of initiatives going across different spaces and different industries where people are really trying to find the right answers. Don't think that, that anyone has solved it yet, really, or has you know, figured it out holistically. But I think there's uh, you know, a new sense of, of energy and invigoration around finding the, the right solution. And it's something that I'm excited to, to keep going and keep pursuing in, in my career pursuit as well. For sure. And I had a similar, like, I guess how I, this, this podcast is a result of last year as well, because I started thinking about how can I participate? How can I contribute in a positive way to this conversation Mm-hmm. And I've repeated this a bunch of times on here, just thinking about conceptualizing the situation, right? It's like, okay, so we have identified the problems. We've identified that there is a, a social hierarchy, you know, from the founding of the country that benefits straight white men, mm-hmm. right? It used to be landowning. Now it's with a college degree, whatever the, you know, yeah. we, can, we can make those parallels. And I was thinking about, okay, what, who do I have access to? Well, it's a bunch of white people that I grew up with. And if I start a podcast, you know, they'll probably listen to it. And if I can normalize these conversations and encourage other white people who I have access to, to think about these things and start these conversations with their own families, that could, that could be a good thing because that's another thing I learned is that, you know, as, as a white person, I have access to spaces that someone of color may not have access to. Right. Just because of our families and who we grew up with. And, you know, it's, it's kind of using like the natural inclination of people to, to form in groups to our advantage. Yeah, no, a hundred percent. I'm glad you did that, man. I feel like 
it's folks like you that are that are actively trying to help me part of the solution, right? That are focusing on what what's my part, what role can I play? And the fact that you're trying to bring awareness to this issue, you're trying to spread a message, you're trying to invite other folks on and offer their perspective are all positive things that I think uh, move the needle in, in a really thoughtful way. So and I, I appreciate you doing this. Uh, I wish more folks would do this and I feel like it's all going to contribute to us uh, hopefully being better um, in our society going forward. For sure. And and more empathy is really one of my core goals because I, I looked at the modeling for, for men, for all men in the culture, you know, like Rogan, for example, he he's like the the white guy Oprah, you know. He didn't want to be that, he you know. He didn't go out with that goal, but that's the reality. And I think you know he definitely has some empathetic modeling and is you know a good dude. It seems, but I think I think we need more of this kind of deeper conversation, self reflection, asking for help, acknowledging our weaknesses to be more mainstream instead of just talking about sports and. Yeah how much beer we drank last weekend. Yeah. You know, <laughs> I, I couldn't agree more. I think you make a good point. I listen to a lot of different you know, podcasts on Spotify and when you focus in on the top of the charts around what those topics are. Typically it's a lot more informal conversation around uh, whether it be, it be women or sports uh, or cultural phenomenon or moments and dissecting that and talking about that, which is all some of that's interesting stuff, right? I, I'd say some of those topics probably shouldn't be discussed or are discussed in disparaging ways, but I, I think to your point, some of the great content and some of the better podcasts that don't get recognition are tackling some of those more difficult issues. And that's sort of a shame, right? So I think to your point, the more we can normalize the fact that what men care about and what men discuss should go beyond the expanse of, you know, the game and IPAs and all of that, the better we are as, as sort of men. Right? <laughs> so I, I, um, I'm fully in your camp. I'm fully in your boat. I feel like as someone that's even from, you know, being a young guy, I always felt that I, I've been in touch with my emotions and I've had more, you know, an emotional side of certain things. I, in the most recent years, I've been really thinking around how do I either contribute or create a space that promotes that. And so I'm, I'm, I too am trying to be part of the solution and say, hey, you know, been there, done that. We discussed this thoroughly, right? Like what else, you know, like what, what else is going on <laughs> underneath the surface, man, beyond, beyond what we've, we've talked about before, you yeah. know, how are you doing? What's, what's your reality? What are you experiencing right now? How are you processing key moments or critical junctures in your life? And what are you doing to hopefully progress and, and move through that or mature or grow? For sure, bro. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, so I, I'm really curious to hear how you came to that. I mean, the moving around is a yeah. a good one. For me, I was really lucky to have this friend group in high school where we would just be super transparent. And I think it was a mixture of, you know, high school is a challenging time. And a lot of my buddies had a combination of divorces happening, mm -hmm. mental health issues, suicidal depression, you know, dealing with sexuality, not being straight, yeah. dealing with, you know, crazy home situations. So all of those things were, were happening. And luckily we had like, a, we were in a high school setting that allowed us to be, uh, the mm -hmm. school The school was awesome, man. It, it facilitated that kind of environment. It was all boys school. And there, there definitely is a ton of ingrained misogyny and uh, systemic racism that we're working to, to undo from an alumni yeah. perspective. Mm -hmm. But despite that, it, it facilitated those conversations that I think kind of set me on the path I'm on. Yeah. Um, but do you know what, have you thought about what, what it was for you? Yeah. I think, I think I, I definitely look at my experience moving around a lot as a key sort of thing that happened to me um, that I didn't have a ton of control over that I really was able to start uncovering how I was feeling. And so each and every move felt different. A lot of, a lot, a lot of times a little kid, it felt like a lot of sadness, <clears throat> a lot of loss, a lot of frustration grief over what could have been in terms of, of certain spaces. I think one of the most critical moves I had was leaving uh, the North suburbs of Chicago as an eighth grader at that time at 14, thinking that, you know, my, my middle school friends, my elementary school friends were all going to go to the same high school. And we were going to go off and do all this stuff and play sports together. And, uh, you know, all these girls that we like growing up and all these different things. And, and that was all in front of me. And it felt like it was snatched away uh, when I moved out to California 
which I'm extremely thankful I moved to California now. But at, at the time when I was 14, <laughs> it felt like, you know, my, my world was collapsing in on me. And so moving, I think, always allowed me to have to reinvent and recreate myself in a way that was going to be conducive to my environment. And a lot of that meant getting in touch with how I was feeling and, and trying to process those feelings each and every time I was upping and moving. I, th- I think another thing that really helped was in my high school, I'd say, and I, I went to uh, a Catholic high school over in the Bay Area. So much of uh, the curriculum that we focused in around was around faith and things like that. And that that was helpful, not in the sense of, of just like religion and what that represents, but more so around the conversations that brought. Uh, and so a, a, a critical experience for me was we had this retreat that we lead, we would host sort of every year for our seniors. It was called Kairos. A lot of, you know, private institutions or like, you know, uh, religious institutions do a similar sort of retreat. And it's kind of focused on self-enlightenment and reflecting and introspection, all these different things. And so um, you start thinking around what that experience means. And it's like this reckoning of who am I and, and where am I at? And so having the privilege to, to not only attend, but then lead that and then deliver sort of a talk to like 60 and 70 of my peers around what, what my reality was and what I was dealing with. Uh, was huge. You know, it, it was a really emotional experience. It was extremely vulnerable and, and moving. And it, it just put you on the spot to be real. I mean, there was no sort of way to, um, at least in my mind, there was no sort of way to cheapen or, you know, manufacture those feelings of that experience. You know, I'm I'm sitting here and we're out in the woods somewhere and I don't have my, my cell phone and it's me and you and three other people and we're in a circle and we're talking. And, you know, we're not in the, the library or out in the football field. We're not in, in gym class. We're not cracking jokes. It's kind of like this moment of, you know, let's let's be serious and let's be honest. And so the build up to that experience, the, the relationships I built with my fellow leaders, trying to give back and be part of, you know, um, community based efforts. It all got me thinking around um, what is it that's unique around me and what perspective can I offer and how can I connect with people? And so that was my sort of segue into just caring around what people have going on and and how can I be of service or help in some sort of way. Incredible. I also went and led a Kairos retreat. Oh yeah. (laughs) For sure. Yeah. That was unreal. I mean, I still go back to my, this is actually a good thing to, I feel like to share with people, because I think that, you know, obviously it's a, it involves a lot of planning and nuance, but the whole crux of it is this moment where you receive messages of love from loved ones. Yeah. And man. I think that's something that can be recreated by anybody, which is really cool. Yeah. You know, any, a friend or a sibling or a partner can kind of facilitate that. Like if you have somebody whose birthday is coming up, you know, getting all their loved ones to, write in letters or voice memos, whatever it is, telling them how much they love them and why can be like a bit of a, a breakthrough moment. Yeah. I mean, that, that point you make, I don't know, I'm not sure how you experience or how you remember that, but I, I remember laying on my bed, getting all those letters from people in my life and uh, just not being all right in that moment, man, I, I broke down, you know, mm-hmm. I, I was reading it all and uh, I knew how much my, my family loved me how much they were there for me and all the support they gave me over the years and you know I, I came from a really good and loving family and affirming family but to see that in that moment and read all those messages and uh, it was overwhelming and to your point I think it's something that can easily be recreated and can be a momentous moment for anybody you know to kind of experience that and see that we all know it but sometimes reading it and, and experiencing it's a bit different it's a bit more powerful for sure and i think it gets to the lack of self-expression especially as, as men that we're conditioned to yeah. like my dad always told me tells me he loves me big hug you know which i think i took for granted until i got older until mm-hmm. I, I i learned how many people's fathers are not comfortable saying that or expressing that or even being silly, showing emotion, laughing at themselves, you know, and that kind of gets at the, the, the underlying situation for men in our country, which is that we're kind of told to suffer silently in some way. I think like the way that comes out then is that the men who are, are feeling told to shut up and and deal with it, then lash out and they 
will abuse, you know, verbally, sexually, physically, whoever, whomever they can in some way. It's a very simplified conception, yeah. but that's kind of, yeah. I feel like the, the, like the big flow chart. Yeah, no, no. I mean, a hundred percent. And I think this, this concept of men trying to, to hold in and, and to repress themselves in some sort of way, because they're not comfortable. They don't feel psychologically safe enough to express what they have going on is extremely harmful, not only to themselves, but to other, other people in society, to your point where others then suffer abuse as a result of their lack of processing and their lack of feeling and their lack of validating their emotions. Right. And so that that's that that's a huge issue, right? And and one thing I even say is I take it a step further and you look at like even a DNI lens and you look around what that means. I think about that for myself as a as a black man and my place in society and what that means and how I'm casted and how I'm portrayed, you know, and the fact that I'm supposed to be mm-hmm. the most hyper masculine person in society and people view us as these dominant, strong people and even though we're dominant and we're strong, we're still repressed because we're not white and we don't have access to those spaces and we still suffer and we don't have that privilege. And, and so there's just so much, so much hardship that goes with that. And I, I, I have a ton of privilege in terms of uh, the life that was put before me and the family that I was born into, which I am eternally grateful for. Um, but I look around and, and when I am sort of volunteering in the community and trying to help other people around, my heart breaks when I, you know, I'm, I'm talking to some of these kids or I see some of the things that are happening where I'm like, man, he, you know, you know, people I'm seeing that 13 or 14 years old are, are frustrated, man. They're, they're mad and they don't know where, where to go with it. And they don't know how to use it in a, in a positive way or channel that in a positive way. And so I try to have conversations. I try to say, Hey, you know, what's going on? Let's, let's talk and let's figure out, you know, what, what we can do to help. But it goes beyond just, you know, you know, small interactions like that. I, I feel like it's it's so challenging and so so hurtful to see that. The one thing I will say that I think is really positive is a lot of initiatives being done right now in terms of getting um, younger black men and younger black boys involved in, in meditation and yoga. It's just introspection and self-reflection activities, breathing stuff, you know, just just something like that can can be extremely beneficial, right? And I, I don't have the exact article or recollection of this, but I remember there was some sort of study done around I think this was, uh, I think around men of color and it could be just be around men, but there was like some sort of correlation between folks that were being sent to detention and being, you know, um, disciplined in school. And instead of sending them to detention, all they did was like allow them to meditate for like 15 to 20 minutes. And like the percentage of, of kids that were acting out went down dramatically. Like it was just like, Hey, give, give them a chance to just breathe a bit to process to (laughs) feel like just just let them be and i want that so badly for for all men but specifically i think even in a dni lens i think around how we're out we're out to be to be made in society and how we're represented and i i really um hope that we can continue to go down that path for sure thank you for for sharing that i think that's a good thing to acknowledge for white men around how black men are portrayed and how black men have to process that portrayal, you know, and that's, that's heavy dude. And thank you for acknowledging that. And Mm -hmm. I hope that my fellow white fellows can, can wrap our heads around that. And just, just, just take a moment to think about how, you know, how, how we're portrayed in the media and in the culture compared to our, our black brothers and how that, how would that make you feel, you know, (laughs) like, you know, it's yeah. a challenge each and every day, man. And I, I wouldn't change it for the world personally. You know, I, I love my blackness. I love who I am. But it, but it's tough sometimes waking up and you know, everything that's happened in the past year and everything and seeing that and then going into work and trying to be strong and going home to, you know, uh, our partners or our spouses or whoever we go home to and challenging times, challenging situations. But, you know, like I said, it's a it's, it's an honor and uh, something that I you know wouldn't trade for anything. Great, great attitude. That's, that's a winner's attitude right there. Yeah. The, I like the meditation piece too. And I, I don't, obviously I don't know, you know, for those kids and everyone has a different situation, what they're dealing with, yeah. but just the, the, the idea of giving a child the ability to go into their own body. Yeah. A, a space where no one else can get into and, and to be able to, have some control in this crazy life 
Yeah, man. I, I just, I'm, <laughs> I'm so excited you said that. And, and I, I, cause I feel like the, you think around what it means to, to grow up and so many experiences and so many things that we have as, as young children. And I reflect back and I think about that and it's like, discipline was always, you know, a staple for me growing up. Right. So, you know, when I would do something wrong, you know, I would, I would get disciplined and, you know, I would be talked to or reprimanded in some sort of way that was supposed to be a deterrent to the future behavior. Right. But when I think about like, you know, what, what I want for my future children, what I, what I want is, you know, if, if something goes wrong or they act out in some sort of way, let's, let's have a conversation and let's, let's do like 10 minutes of just some, some breathing and meditation and like, just some like emotional regulation to the point where, Hey, like you, you did this or you chose to do this, man. Like, are you okay? Like, you know, what, what's going on with you? what led you to, to do that? You know, are you, are you feeling a bit anxious right now? Are you feeling a bit sad? Are you upset? Are you frustrated? I'm less focused on not having him or her demonstrate that behavior. Again, I'm more focused on what inspired that behavior, what inspired that choice and getting to the root of that. And, and let's talk about that. Let's break that down in a real way. Cause at the, at the end of the day, man, like as a, as a kid, everything that's happening around you is being done to you, man. Like it, it, you can think that maybe people are trying to listen to you or value your opinion, but so much of your life up to 18 is people creating, rules and and a hierarchy and dictating terms to you on how you have to be in the life you have to live. And I think it's important to create space for, for kids to have their own agency, whether it's like bod- bodily autonomy, right? Like not, you know, I think another important topic is not letting anyone just, you know, touch your child or hug your child in any sort of way. Make sure your, your child's comfortable receiving that or, or is mm-hmm. just with that. Maybe some kids don't necessarily want to do all that right now, right? So giving kids back some autonomy in a real way, whether it's when things go wrong or they act out and, and helping them work through that in meditation or breathing or conversation or asking them, do they feel comfortable greeting people right now and being out there? That is extremely important. Um, and I, don't know, I just, I got excited when you said that, man, I, I didn't mean to, to go <laughs> on, but I, I'm all for, you know, being in that, that camp of, of giving kids um, the opportunity to, to feel and to process and to, um, discuss how they're feeling. Hundred percent, and I, that's a great, another great perspective you've just given me. Just to keep that in mind when I interact with kids, it's a good thing to remember. You know, like kind of being under the thumb of one's parent or guardian, or at at school, or after school, whoever is running the situation, and just kind of just being like, "I see you, kid. I'm I'm sorry that you don't have control of your own life yet." Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> just just like that, man. You know, like I, you know, kids in a lot of ways have uh, a lot of things that are great for them, right? Everyone's out trying to support them. They, their the responsibility, responsibility is to go to school and to do those things and to, to have fun in a lot of ways, but it also is it's still challenging too. I mean, everyone's on you all the time trying to mm-hmm. tell you what you're doing. So just having that bit of, of empathy, I think is extremely healthy and I think positive. For, kids. for sure. You're extremely healthy and positive, my friend. <laughs> love it awesome dude well this is awesome i think that we could we could do many many more episodes in the future Uh, but we'll pivot over to the the three things game here for our last segment let's do it what are three things you have learned about love oh man i I love this you'll have to you have to listen to this or you have to cut me off i go too far here i think first and principally love is Love is wanting the best for the other person you're you're with, uh, you're seeing, or you're building romantic feelings for. When you really love somebody, it's taking a step back and wanting to see them blossom and bloom and step into their greatness. And sometimes that means not being a part of that equation. You know, sometimes you love someone, mm-hmm. it isn't the right fit and it isn't the right deal, but you're happy to see them off on their own journey and to do that, right? So I think it's Love is selfless in that way. I think principally first is uh, it's focusing on, on what's best for, for the other person, right? I think the second thing I'd say is is, is love is difficult. Um, love is difficult because there's, in my mind, a couple of different things that happen in the process of creating and evolving and, and nurturing love. You, you fall in love, which is rather easy. Um, that kind of happens over the sort of first six to nine, 12 months of relationship. You get to sort of honeymoon phase. You're, you're liking each other. You're seeing each other in the best way possible. 
Um, but then it gets challenging. You see someone's faults, you see their, their, their shortcomings, you see all these different things that maybe you, uh, you didn't realize at first that aren't ideal for you. And you have to choose each and every day to love that person and to be there for them and to see them and to validate and appreciate them. And that's difficult. You know, that, that's not something that's, that's natural. You have to choose that each and every day. It's an active decision to love someone, you know, you feel at first, but then you have to choose after that. Uh, Mm -hmm. so I I say love is difficult. Um, the last thing I I probably say is that it's, um, it makes the human experience special. I mean, love, love is special, man. Like when you find it and you find that person that that you love, it's, it's this like euphoria that is absolutely unbelievable, harder to describe. You, you, you open yourself up to someone in such a real way that it's, it's, it's hard to even put into words. I'm like struggling on how to really say it, but it's, it's something that we all should experience and all should create space for in a way that's authentic and real and, you know, pivoting away from, you know, personas and who we think we are, or these, these pipe dreams we're trying to sell someone. We're, we're really need to step into who am I and, and how do I bring that out in each and every interaction? And how do I have someone that's going to celebrate that and acknowledge that and see, see me for that. Right. So it's, it's, it's an indescribable feeling when you find that right person. And, um, I, I'll leave it at that. I, you know, I have some more things to say, but I, I want to pretty brief. Hopefully, that's helpful for three things. That's that I incredible. That's you should be. You should look at a poetry as a side as a side gig, man. I used to write, man, back when I was at GW. <laughs> I took some classes, nice for a little bit. But you know what? I, I figured that after a while, I was talking about the same things and the same stuff, and I was like, you know what? This this isn't for me. But I enjoyed it for what it was. Hey, I'm, I'm, I'm sure your perspectives have changed since then. And, and I'm sure there's a lot more you could write about if you want to revisit it. Maybe so, man. Maybe, maybe this would be the inspiration for me to, to step back into that. I appreciate that. For sure. Okay. Here's mine. What are three things I have learned about leadership? Mm. Yeah. I mean, I think to potentially give ourselves both a pat in the back, I'm going to go ahead and say we're both leaders, Nico, in, in our own ways. You know, I, I can see that in you for sure. And, and I know that I enjoy enjoy that. So the first one I'll say is that I've learned that whenever I have that gut feeling that a situation needs some leadership to lean into it, it's kind of similar to what we talked about with discussing sensitive topics and, and white people acknowledging race. If, if I have that feeling of, of leading into it, I should lean into it because someone else is probably having that same feeling too. And, and they may, they may not go ahead. Like if we all wait around for someone to step up and organize or lead a conversation, it'll never happen. Mm-hmm. Um, right. So the, the second thing I have learned is that sometimes leading is letting someone else lead. And, and I would say my, <laughs> my, my first time I realized that was in uh, rugby. Cause I love rugby. I've been playing since high school. I still play. And I've been in, in various leadership roles on on my teams, and I think at first, once I first got that taste of leadership from like being a captain and or being on the organization side, I, I started. I liked it. I liked the prestige. I liked the power and the influence, and and being someone among my peer group that was in a position of authority. And then actually, on my current rugby team it's a it's a gay and inclusive team right and so me being in that space as a straight guy is kind mm-hmm. of interesting and you know i i have people in my life who who challenge me on that who say dude like why are you in that space you know it's a gay team you're a straight guy which you know i know my my, my reaction is also to be defensive of my position there but i appreciate the pushback like i appreciate acknowledging at least and, and acknowledging like this isn't my space necessarily yeah um but anyway, so the, the lesson there was like there was a moment where I was the captain of that team for a while, and then I became a co-captain um, when another guy developed up and got into a leadership position, and I had yeah. to I had to check myself and be like, oh yeah, I'm a straight guy, and yeah. this is a gay team, and this is not my space. Like I probably shouldn't be the face of this organization. <laughs> yeah. That's great reflection, man. Great introspection. I'm glad, I'm glad you arrived at that, right? Where it's like, how do I? how do I play a part in, in helping here or, or aiding here, but also realizing that this isn't meant for me and that I can play a role, but I, I probably should take a step back sometimes. For sure. Yeah. And then 
Number three, what have I learned about leadership? Dude, a lot of people who are leaders should not be in the positions of leadership. <laughs> also very true. <laughs> <laughs> like, oh my God. Like, it can be brutal as we've seen. But yeah, I would say those things, man, I love, that's a great topic, leadership. I think that it is kind of a buzzword. It's a bit of, you know, it's like, man, I think the culture has, has recognized the necessity of it, but we don't have a very nuanced perspective on it. Mm-hmm. You know, I think there's a lot of books, business books around emotional intelligence and true leadership. And I, I feel like it's, it's getting better, but I still think it's a bit of a lot of like pop psychology. And, and I think there's going to be hopefully more nuance and more of a high quality analysis of what leadership is in, in, in our generation in our generation of, of thought leaders. Yeah. Absolutely, man. I think that that's, that's necessary. I think it was, uh, to your point, a lot of folks generate tons of conversation around it. It's discussed, it's, it's thought through, but there still is a lot of folks that are very ineffective leaders that are leading organizations or are stuck in middle management. And again, just putting my HR hat back on, when you, when you think around having ineffective leaders that sit within the middle of an organization, it provides challenges not only to leadership, but also to junior colleagues in terms of an engagement perspective, wanting to be there, having success, feeling motivated, all those different things. And so uh, more research is certainly needed. More conversations need to happen because we're not there yet. So I couldn't agree more. Awesome, Nico. Dude, well, thank you so much for, for being on the pod. I hope you hope you enjoyed your experience. I certainly, it was a treat to talk with you. It was, it was wonderful, Thomas. I appreciate you having me, man. Great, great concept here. Great work and uh, keep it going. Thanks, dude. Thanks for the encouragement. I appreciate it. 100%. Boom, fa. There it is. Love to see it. A couple of dudes being guys right there, showing each other some love, support, and a caring ear. Massive thank you to Nico for his awesome contributions and for giving the time to all of us to learn something new. If you've made it this far through the episode, I humbly ask you to give the show a rating on whatever app you are listening to it on. And we'll see you next week on the Bro Nouveau podcast.